0: Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. Well, here we are again, and uh, it's about time we donned our baseball caps and took our gloves out of the locker and uh, talked a little baseball with somebody who's known around these parts as Mr. Baseball in so many respects. You've written about it. You love it. You talk about it with friends. You talk about it with me. So today, Larry, uh, a story that's part of the memoir, Giuliani, Baseball, and Brookline. And I read it again last night. Very entertaining.
1: Yeah, Jordan, you know, um, this uh, as I got ready for this program, I read this story that I wrote within a month after 9-11 mm-hmm. called uh, Brookline Baseball and Giuliani. Well, I think the first thing somebody might say is, why Giuliani? You know, Rudy Giuliani was mayor of New York at that time. Uh, he wasn't trying to be the mayor of uh, Kiev and uh, Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's one Rudy Giuliani, and there's another Rudy Giuliani. Now, he was accounted to be a good district attorney and a good mayor. And um, I think he was sensitive to what the country went through in 9-11. Um, uh, the Giuliani of today, that's a different story. But I called this—so I, when I came upon this, I said, my God, Giuliani, he's really in bad aroma now. Maybe I should change the name of that story. But I decided I wouldn't do that because uh, that's just not proper. Mm. Um, and uh, it, I, I left it as it appeared to me at that time. And
0: it was exactly of that time. And he stepped up to do what he did. And you can't take that away. So let's focus on that story that you wrote. I,
1: I will. And, uh, you know, nine eleven. as I said uh, at an, in, a, in another program we did, You know, it happened 20 years ago, and um, so anybody uh, who's less than 30, uh, you know, who's, you know, not over 30, probably doesn't have much of a memory of it. So um, that—and what the country was like at that time. I think the point to make is that that's one of the last times that we all came together as a country. Mm. And uh, the exact opposite— is present at the base, at the present time. We're not together. We're mm-hmm. very divided. Mm-hmm. We're threatened with the loss of our democracy. That wasn't the case then. Now, one might ask, what has baseball got to do with that? It's just a game. It is not just a game. Baseball, Rudy Giuliani put it perfectly. He says, baseball has an amazing grip on people. It is a unifying force. Quote, unquote. And not only that, Derek Jeter, who just was admitted to baseball's Hall of Fame in the third playoff game that year, made a play that nobody had ever seen before. If you remember, all of, uh, there was an errant throw uh, that was going uh, to advance runners, and it was heading to cross the baseline between home and first base. And into our sight came Jarek Jeter, the shortstop, mm. to catch that ball and flip it backhanded to the catcher, as I remember, catching a runner trying to cross the plate. Mm. Now, that play showed a willingness to take a chance, to put a, to to of invent, American inventiveness, uh, American uh, athleticism, a lot of good things about. Jeter's play uh, that he made on that particular day, so that um, one. So I wrote this, as I say, I wrote this article, and um, I do think baseball, like music, is sort of you can't really explain why it has such a grip on people. Why do Nobel laureates read the box scores sometimes yeah. first?
0: Yeah, couldn't help but think of uh, when I read your article again before the show today. Couldn't help but think of my favorite baseball movie. Maybe it's yours. I'm not sure. Called Field of Dreams, which has so much spiritual uh, adventure in it. But the speech that James Earl Jones gives, you know, uh, when he's talking to uh, Roy about baseball, the power of the game, and the, the lore and the myth. I thought the same thing when I read your article. I teared up a little bit. I must say, it was so beautifully written.
1: Well, I know you love baseball, Jordan, and I think it is true that um, I think the way I think of it is that uh, it's like music. It, it lies in mystical reasons. Um, and I think that for somebody to, to uh, say, why is baseball so important to the American psyche, I don't think you can put it in words. I think the only way to do it, and we'll get into that, is to tell about the experiences that people have had.
0: Yeah, and and the first experience you have as a kid when your dad takes you mostly dads takes you to the ballpark. Uh, you talk about that. I I remember it like it was yesterday. I for remember
1: me. it like yesterday. And do you remember who took you to the first basketball? I mean, you know, people. Uh, you don't remember who took you to the no, first football game, no, no. baseball, basketball game, no, but hockey but game. In,
0: in this town, Larry, when well, you uh, also were a Braves guy, so I didn't know about Braves Field, but when you walked up the ramp. Uh, and saw that green grass of Fenway and those white uniforms and the wall, it's like, it's like Dorothy entering Oz. <laughs> or the Emerald City, not quite, but almost. So, so let's, let's focus a, a bit on this. You wrote about the, the game and, and New York, and that was the center of 9-11 destruction and also 9-11 response. Um, what else do you remember from that, from that particular period post-9-11 in, in terms of baseball?
1: Well, as I say, uh, the uh, what I'm directing myself here to is the little understood and maybe not uh, and the lack of ability to articulate why baseball is so important, but I think it is and it, and it was demonstrated after nine eleven um, and I think as I just said, the way to demonstrate that is to speak about some of the people that I spoke about in that mm-hmm. article. Let's take a few of them, sure. Um, bunny Solomon was one. Now, Bunny was a real character. They used to call him Bunny because his aunt came from Chicago to see him when he was born and looked through the window at this baby. And she said, what a cute little bunny. <laughs> <laughs> and it stuck. It stuck, it stuck his stuck. entire life. And Bunny was the biggest fundraiser in Northeastern's history. He, he he got to know Harry Truman. Uh, he uh, was uh, on s- telephone terms with... JFK and Ted Kennedy and people like that and he became my friend. As a matter of fact uh, he was the second person I interviewed in 1998 or something like that on my television program about Brookline when I decided I was going to be an historian and we went out after the program, after an hour program. Did I tell about this? And we were standing in the men's room doing what we had to do and he says to me, he says, uh, well, that was good, Larry. You're going to become famous. Well, <laughs> that hasn't happened. But I did have a future, and in, uh, in in that field. So his father came from Kiev and fell in love with baseball. He used to go to uh, the old ballparks that are on the, the northeastern campus. He used to be there. Red Sox played in one of them. The Braves played in another one. And then he uh, he loved it so much. He would take Bunny when he was a kid to see Braves games. Bunny would get in for free because his father, they let in kids with their father at that time free. And then Bunny said, hey, this is pretty good. And he started going himself. Saw zillions of Braves game. And uh, then when in the sixth grade, he went out for the team and he made the sixth grade team at Lawrence, uh, which is uh, one of the schools in Brookline. And um, so they got to an important game and some of these names are priceless. Wiggy Wiggins hmm. fell out of a tree and broke his wrist. He was the catcher. And the coach says, who's going to be the catcher? And Bunny puts up his hand, I'll be the catcher. So the coach says, OK, you'll be the catcher. He says, he says don't, don't look at the batter. Don't look at anything except the ball. Catch the ball. And um, Good so, <laughs> and he says, but he did steal a look behind him at one point in the game. And there was his father behind the backstop looking at him. So Bunny says, a proud moment for me. Mm. And another proud moment was even before that, when he made the team and he had his uniform, his father took him to Sears to get spikes And when he got his spikes, he put on his uniform, put on the spikes, and walked in his spikes from home all the way to Coolidge Corner to some guy's barbershop so everybody could see him in his uniform. And he said, a proud day for me.
0: Absolutely. You probably had
1: days like that.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Any chance you can wear anything that looks like a baseball uniform, it's a great day.
1: Those were proud moments. And, you you know, Bunny and I became very close friends. I died about... I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. And uh, he was always proud of Brookline, proud of Northeastern. He was a big—I would call him a politico because he knew everybody, and he was a real character. Mm. And uh, But Bunny, if you asked him what's important in your life, he would probably say, well, my family, politics, and baseball or something <laughs> like that.
0: <laughs> Who's Bob Sperber, and why does that name sound familiar to you? Well, me?
1: Bob Sperber was the—he uh, uh, died maybe, I don't know, five or six years ago. For a long time, he was the um, uh, he was the superintendent of schools in Brooklyn. Wow. Very forward-looking, came up with some terrific ideas. Everybody accounts Bob Sperber as probably the best superintendent of schools in Brooklyn's history. Came from New York, the Bronx School of Science, and he hated—he loved the Giants, hated the Yankees, and when he came here, he became a super Red Sox fan, and his staff at school gave him a day when he turned 50— called uh, nifty uh, a Nifty 50 birthday party, and they gave him all sorts of Red Sox paraphernalia, a big Red Sox animal or something.
0: Hoping to convert him for all time? Uh, to, to convert him? To, to the Red Sox. Oh, he was already converted. He was converted, okay. Oh,
1: yeah, he was a big Red Sox fan. Oh,
0: good. I mean, he didn't, his loyalty oh, is... Didn't,
1: I didn't make that clear. So he was really a big Red Sox fan. Okay. I got to know Bob Sperber. You know, I interviewed him. Um, you know, he was... Uh, he was a very firm guy and ran a tight ship. I remember when I interviewed him, to get down all the facts and be able to write about him, not about the baseball, but about school innovations and things he did pre school et cetera, et cetera. So he got in touch with me one day, and he said, you got that right. And I said, oh, I did, thanks. And the same thing with Dick Leary. Dick Leary was a great town administrator, Dick Leary, mm-hmm. and uh, he was a wonderful guy, too. And he had lots of facts about the administration of town government. And uh, he, so I had to really work hard, use my lawyer's <laughs> skills to get this down on paper, not only to get it down, but make it interesting. Yeah. So Dick Leary said, you did that good, Larry. And, you know, that was those were compliments for those guys that was almost as good as the judge saying, good job. There you
0: go. There's a name on this list, and I have a, a connection here to this guy, and uh, loved him, absolutely adored him, as did everybody in this town. The uh, former assistant conductor to the Boston Pops, uh, Arthur Fiedler's right-hand man, and a terrific guy, Harry Ellis Dixon, who has a very famous son-in-law and uh and
1: I used daughter. to look at Harry Ellis Dixon up there. Uh, when he conducted pops, and also when he played for the Boston Symphony, he was a very elegant-looking guy. Mm. And uh, he'd gone to Berlin during the time uh, that Hitler was rising to power, and and uh, learned some of the um, learned about, uh, a lot about music over there. He played violin with the Boston Symphony for 49 years. Mm-hmm. Yes, his son-in-law was Michael Dukakis, his who daughter, ran for president his, of the United States. His daughter
0: States. is Kitty Dukakis. daughter
1: was Kitty. And, um, you know, I'm in touch these days with Michael about something. He's a great friend and a great guy. And Kitty's a really wonderful lady. She did some great things. So that, um, yes, uh, but he also had a friend well-known. Matter of fact, I used to play hooky from law school to see this guy because he was such a great entertainer,
0: Danny Kay. Ah, love Danny Kaye. So, One of my favorites, too.
1: Oh, yeah. He was fantastic. And from he, Brooklyn. He,
0: and he had a baseball connection very yeah, much he, so. Yeah, he was
1: the part owner of the of the team out in Seattle. N- uh, the Mariners at yeah, the time. Mariners.
0: I think they were the Pilots, I think, at first, and then yeah, they became pilots, the Mariners. Yeah, right. I remember when Danny used to come to the ballpark when the his team was in town. He'd come, and, and guys like Harry would visit with him in the box.
1: Um, not only that... What they did and what it, what I wrote about in this article, he they were both lovers of music, both lovers of baseball. That tells you something. And um, the two of them would sit in the press box and munch hot dogs and watch the game mm-hmm. and talk. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, up there they had, you know, more privacy, I guess. I don't know what it was.
0: Now, Harry Ellis Dixon was also a friend, and I know you know this guy, of Sherm Feller, the uh, famous— broadcaster, and PA announcer at Fenway Park. Did you know the story of Sherm and Harry Ellis Dixon? No. Harry Ellis Dixon, Sherm used to write music. He was a Renaissance man, kind of like you, and he wrote uh, uh, something that the Pops actually performed, and Harry Ellis Dixon performed it as the conductor. So I remember going to a dinner afterwards in Chinatown. Sherm threw the dinner, and Harry was there, and all these elegant people, and Sherm was a Damon Runyon-type character, but Harry was such a gentleman, such a sweet man, really nice guy.
1: You know, I remember the last time I saw him, he was living up uh, at uh, the place uh, that—it's an assisted living facility now. And uh, Mike told me the story of when he had a back problem—this was late in his life—that the surgeon screwed up and Harry was really affected. Hmm. And I went in to see him. He was lying in bed— and um, I, yeah, I, I was talking to him, and he said, you know, he said, my back really hurts. I really have a lot of pain, can't really get up. You know, he was—it was within a, less than a year of, of the time that he passed away. Yeah, but he, he, also,
0: he also did something that uh, people remember, and they should. He was leading the Youth Symphony Orchestra for decades. So he had a lot of young kids that came through, and they he was the leader, the music director. Remarkable guy,
1: you know. As long as we're talking uh, about uh, people like Sherm Feller, what I would like you to—I mean—I knew Norm Nathan quite well. As did I. But I and I knew Norma, his wife. They were both characters. She was a she was a newspaper woman who covered the State House in a colorful way, and Norm uh, was uh, an absolutely wonderful. I don't know, a disc jockey, but does that do him justice? Tell uh, us about him.
0: Sure. Norm Nathan uh, was my radio hero and uh, had a show called Sounds in the Night on the old WHDHAM at midnight, and he would play jazz records and interview interesting people and take phone calls. And then later on, he worked at WRKO, where I also worked, and I was just a kid, really literally out of school, and I worked with him. And then he ultimately w- completed his career at WBZ. But he, what I learned from him, Larry, and you know me pretty well, the idea of, of humor on the air and being self-deprecating, never ever hurting anybody with that humor, but poking fun at yourself, and he was a master of that. And he also was a master of using the imagination to create characters just by himself. And, uh, oh, it was just great. And Norma was a was a hot ticket. If you were on her good side, that's what you wanted to be. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't he use the
1: expression "Hi, old sport or something like
0: that? Yeah, he signed off with bye-bye old sport. And here's one for you. He would sign off and say, and uh, I'm very happy to say good night and, uh, to the lovely Marilyn Gorelnik, wherever you may be. It's kind of like his Mrs. Calabash.
1: Who's Marilyn Guerrero?
0: It was somebody from uh, Malden or Medford when, in from his youth. It was just funny. I mean, it just it just did it to be funny. But, uh, but, yeah, no, Harry Ellis Dixon and Sherm were good pals. And uh, Harry would often go to the ballpark, uh, you know, and sit with Sherm in the, in the PA booth as well.
1: Yeah, he's the guy that would say, now batting or something like
0: that. Now batting, number 10, Larry Rutman, third base, Rutman, Yeah, that was him.
1: No, they don't have left-handed third base.
0: <laughs> oh, sorry. I, I screwed up. <laughs> but uh, I want to come back to uh, the, the article that's part of the memoir that's so moving about baseball, about 9-11. I just want to share a memory with you. I, I remember after 9-11, literally days after, baseball games were canceled because there was no flight. Here or there, and it was inappropriate to play baseball. I mean, Kennedy was assassinated, and the football games went on that weekend, so that didn't happen. But when they came back, uh, along with everything else, I remember when George Bush came out to throw out that pitch, that first pitch at at uh, Yankee Stadium, and he threw a perfect strike. Uh, And I'm hoping, as I'm watching, I'm saying, please don't throw it in the dirt. Please throw a strike. And he did. And moments like that, you never forget. And it's tied around the baseball theme.
1: Well, you know, let the people out there know that uh, right now, uh, it's the playoffs of the 2021 season.
0: As we record this, yeah.
1: As we record this, now the Red Sox beat the Yankees the other day to advance to a five-game series with the uh, with the Tampa Bay Rays
0: exercising the ghost of Bucky Dent,
1: and, and um, so I watched the game last night. You know, hope for the best. You're a Red Sox fan, but these guys really look superior to the Red Sox, and I have to think to myself that they're going to be the, beat the Red Sox. I hope I'm wrong. We got um, we got uh, Sale pitching tonight. He was the best pitcher in baseball until he had his arm operation. But we will see, but um, we're watching. Yeah, and there's another guy that I want to talk about. In oh,
0: yes, yes. Uh, one more name here. I forgot to bring it up. I'll bring it up now. You wrote down Owen Carl C-A-R-L-E, and you wanted to talk about him last in this segment.
1: Yeah, I do, because he's probably, in many ways, the most interesting of all of them. No, not. Uh, that's the wrong way to put it. He was a folklorist. And he could tell you stories forever, and he was um, born. I think f- he's fifteen younger, fifteen years younger than I wa- I am so he must have been born about nineteen sixteen or something like that. And he lived well into his eighties and died. I don't know, six seven years ago. So he was an interesting guy. But um, I think that um, he really combined a number of things: um, school, work, baseball music, folklorists, as I just said. Um, he was a school committee man later. He was also a public accountant. That was his work. Um, he he told me that at the time he was growing up, baseball was absolutely king, and that um, they would gather at that store we talked about that uh, Ethel Weiss had. Oh, yes. And they would go to play at various playing fields in Brooklyn. We're lucky we got a lot of them. They would play at Devotion. They would play at Columbia Street. They would play at Lawrence School. Here, there, and everywhere, they would play games. Uh, he told about Charles Taylor. Remember I told you a story about yes. uh, the uh, the headmaster, I guess you'd call him, right. yeah, of the devotion school, who used to come out and play ball with the people? Isn't he the guy that knocked you for a loop? Yeah, he knocked one point? me for a loop. <laughs> and he came He came out one day when—this is years before me, of course—when uh, Owen was at the devotion school— and he he hit one through a window across the street. Uh, it was somebody in town government named McNally. So immediately, and, you know, Owen cites this as showing how one should act morally. He went across and rang the bell, and he wanted to make sure that they know. He was the guy that broke the window. He would be happy to pay for it. And um, that's how you know, uh, Owen learned the right thing to do, but it wasn't the only thing. But that taught him how much uh, Charles Taylor was interested in the morality Mm. of his students and that they would do the right thing. Right.
0: Baseball does have a way, uh, because there are so many rules and there's so much intent on being a team player. It's a great uh, morale and, and ethics booster, no question about it.
1: He, um, you know, uh, Owen also cited to me that uh, Camus, uh, Camus, what was his first name, the French philosopher, uh,
0: Albert Camus, C A M U, Albert, you know, yes,
1: yeah, you know, had he quoted him as saying the highest form of morality is athletics. Hmm. Now, if Albert Camus thought so, it's not much of a stretch to think that uh, baseball and uh, uh, And uh, as Giuliani pointed out, that it's all woven together in the American psyche. Yeah,
0: and and I'm sure you're familiar with the John Updike uh, piece that he wrote, the essay on Ted Williams and all the other great sports writing about baseball and more so the kind of writing you do, which is not just about the sport but about the culture. It it is magical. It still is, despite the success of football and basketball and – The commercial success, I don't think you'll ever replace the American pastime.
1: Well, you know, I really think those other sports play into a different uh, part of the psyche of Americans than baseball does. But that maybe is a subject for a longer conversation. Anyway, um, his mother is a lady by the name of Florence Owen Mills, and uh, she was a gifted violinist. And she was smart enough to take him every week on Ladies' Day to Braves Field to see the Red Sox. So there was a guy named Eddie O'Brien, a rotund guy who announced the lineup on a megaphone. They didn't have all the apparatus they did today. So when Owen is telling me the story, he he imitates Eddie O'Brien coming out with his megaphone, and he would go around from the first base side to the third base side, standing out on the infield, and he would say, No betting for the Boston Braves, Al Spora. Got a, a catcher in the early 30s. Okay. And uh, so he listened to—he uh, he had total recall of this. And he explained to me, I said, I've never heard of Alspur, but he was a catcher in in that time. So what did he do in the—we talked about the 1936 All-Star Game. Mm. Charlie Kickham went there and uh, and stole his way into the ballpark. Charlie Kickham, this great morally high lawyer that he became— who was a JFK buddy became president of the Massachusetts Bar Association, but he got it. He had his way of getting into the 1936 All Star Game when he was like, I don't know, ten or eleven or whatever. Who could blame him? Mm-hmm. So that. Um, so what did what did uh, our friend um, uh, do at that particular time? Uh, uh, so that what he did was he. Stole. He hooked up with Al Rubin. Now, Al Rubin, who became a a rabbi in the Midwest, a very (laughs) successful one. So, um, uh, what he did was he joined up with Al Rubin. The bottle law was in effect to collect bottles and to get rid of them at two cents each. But what and they thought they could do that at Rubin's father's delicatessen, the famous Rubin's delicatessen.
0: Oh yes, right on Harvard Street.
1: Right, yeah. and they ultimately they moved to another location further down on Harvard Street, but at that time it was you know a well known place, mm-hmm. as well known as Jack and Marion's. So that, um, but his, but the guy, but Rubin's father, he says, I don't need that many. They collected a couple hundred bottles, and they had to find ways to get rid of them, and they had to lower the price. And they didn't make all the money they thought they would make, so And then the I think one of the most fascinating stories he told was that he, he belonged to a team, a baseball team called the Mustangs, <laughs> and the Mustangs won in 1936, went up to New Hampshire to play the Manchester Young Men's Polish Association. So they're leaving the game 10 to three. The bases are loaded, and the guy wallops a line drive to left center. And uh, uh, so that he goes over to try and catch the ball, and he collided. He was playing left fielder, collided with the center fielder, and his hand hit the center fielder's mouth, and the the guy's tooth stuck in his hand. Oh. Right. And the guy, was his name was Billy Mated. He was an artist, as well as a baseball player, as Owen put it, and... Um, so that um, he still has a scar where it was, ah. and when they got back to the bench, he, they took the tooth out and stuck it in Billy's um, gum, and it stayed there. Well, that's how you did it back then, right? You, for you, the rest of his life.
0: For the <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's putting some dentist out of work, but that's okay. So
1: that's they only tough. took a t- they only took nine guys up, so they had a play with eight guys. But you know that made a, the ball mm. got through. Ten. Now the score was ten to seven. They only could play with two outfielders because Billy was dizzy. He couldn't go out there again. And um, But they won the game.
0: These are all Owen Carl stories.
1: These are all Owen Carl stories. And um, so I think the way I put it at the end of my article was, um, uh, in my mind, as I put it, many baseball memories uh, I have. I didn't put in all any of mine at this particular time, but it's how I think a lot of it has to do with how character develops. It marks the seasons of a person's life. It can't be explained, but as I put it in the at the end of the article, if I can quote, Jordan, is that okay? By all means. Quote, for sure, that grip and the force are being felt all across America every day and every night in these baseball days following the trauma of 9-11 somehow diverting us, helping to heal the wound, and making us yet again feel whole as a people. Now, remember, Jordan, I wrote those words within a month after 9-11. And, you know, there was a feeling in the country at that time of togetherness, as I said. And I think that baseball, as I've tried to indicate, had a great deal to do with that. And I think that it's as I was getting ready for this, I'm saying to myself, God, how different it is now than it was then.
0: Indeed. Well said, and uh, a great piece that people can read in the memoir, as well as hear about on the podcast. Thank you, my friend.
1: My pleasure, Jordan. Always my pleasure.
0: This has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRuttman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Rutman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness and maturation on a life lived backwards one man's life